Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. It's good to see each and every one of you. I'm so thankful you're here. We're continuing our series going through uh, the first few chapters of Hebrews together, and we've entitled this sermon series, Jesus is Greater which is a wonderful title. We've been every week talking about the ways in which he is greater. He's a greater name. He's a greater salvation. This week, we're going to talk about this idea of how he's a greater help to us. He is the greatest help. Now, I want to remind you of our theme verse that we'll be using all throughout the series. And it's out of Hebrews chapter 1, where we get this greater than theme. It says in Hebrews 1, 4, This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave Him is greater than their names. Now, as we look at this sermon and and this title, and you're going to see as we dig into Hebrews 2, finishing up Hebrews 2, that this word help just keeps coming into play, that what we needed was a a great helper, if you will, someone that would come in and, and fix something that had been done to our, to our nature, to our existence. And I have to admit something, that the idea of being helped is, is difficult for me. I don't know if this is the nature of who you are, but I have a hard time accepting help. It's just kind of who I am. I, I hear that it's, it's pretty common in men, but I think it's just common in people. Just in general, we don't want to feel uh, like we need help because that's an admittance that we're not enough. And so we often struggle with wanting or receiving help. But the thing is, we desperately need help help all the time. I I figured out definitely as a parent, um, I I really don't want to parent four kids by myself. Uh, I don't want to do that. That's way too much. Uh, When my wife's not home, which she's been busy a lot this week, just putting little kids to bed is a, is a major frustration. Um, it's, it's something else. And some of you are like, oh, that's like my favorite time of day. B- bless you. I'm so thankful that, that you're having a great time of it. Mine like to get up. In fact, last night, my, my two little ones got up. I was upstairs watching the ball game, and they tried to sneak through. I heard little pitter-patters of feet. I'm like, something's going on down there. I don't know what it is. And they're getting their iPads and sneaking them into their room so that they could play while they're supposed to be sleeping. And this is the kind of nonsense that goes on at my house all the time. And I need help. I need help. I'm glad I'm not a solo parent. And some of you uh, know how, how, how true that really is. There's so many things in our life that we need help. But often we do really struggle. It made me, it made me think of a, an old Beatles song, which I don't, I don't know if this one came to mind. But help, I need somebody. Not just anybody. I need someone. Help. Yeah. Uh, and the verse is pretty cool too, uh, but I need somebody. That's so true, and not just anybody. Now, the Beatles, I don't know who they were thinking of, but they got this thing right, all right? This song, this chorus is spot on because we need somebody and not just anybody because not just anybody will do the part of the, the, the big help you actually need. If nothing else today, I hope that you would have a clarity when you leave the building that I need help on a level that no human can fix. But I also have received help on a level beyond what I could have imagined. That that Christ has done something beyond anything I could have dreamed of. That he is the greatest help to me. I pray you'll understand that today. There was an earlier musician, even earlier than the Beatles, and if you're familiar with, with Bach, he always wrote at the bottom of every one of his manuscripts, he wrote the initials SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. And a lot of people are familiar with that. That's awesome. Like his masterpieces, to the glory of God alone. But not a lot of people are aware that at the top of every one of his manuscripts, he also wrote J.J. Yesu Yuva, which in Latin means, Jesus, help me. As he began to write the next piece, he's thinking, I'm going to need your help on this one. I'm going to need your help getting me through it. Bach knew who to call on for help. I wonder, church, do you know, do you know who to call for help? Who's, who's at the top? The iPhone's really wonderful, man. You can put favorites in there and at the top. You know, this is the person I call a lot. For me, it's my wife and then my dad. And there's people in that favorite starred list. If I'm going to call somebody, 
But what if I get in a situation that no man can handle? Who's on the top of my speed dial? Who am I calling for help? That's what this sermon is about today. Knowing you can call the great helper, the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, the author continued to show why Jesus is greater than all. I mean, that's his ultimate goal is everything he's just greater. Okay, he's, he's the savior of the world. He's the son of God. He's the greatest. Hallelujah. But today he's, he's working specifically on this idea of why his help is greater, greater than any other help we might receive. And we can understand this, and the text is going to give us four really clear reasons why there is no greater help than Jesus. So let's finish up Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 5. It says this, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man? that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and with honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Boy, that's a sentence. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, are they all have one source. That is why Jesus, he, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Praise God. Saying, I, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold... I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely... It's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, church, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Why is there no greater help than Jesus? No greater help for our greatest needs. It's because Jesus alone restores us to God's purpose. This is maybe the biggest reason of them all. That the picture the writer of Hebrews is trying to paint here is that we have have fallen so far from the image of God that God created us to be. And yet what Christ has done is fully restore us to who we were meant and created to be. That our purpose is now known and found in Christ Jesus. This is why he says again and again he is able to help. He says it through 14 through 18 verses there. His help is greater than all others. He became one of us. That's the the nature of everything that's being said. But more than that, he didn't just... Come and be one of us. He put everything under subjection. You might have noticed that word all throughout the, tr- the text. This word subjected, subjection. It's the Greek word hupotasso, which is actually a military term, which means to come up under. We see it in some other scriptures later about submission and to submit to. This is the idea that I would choose to line up under. Well, here, creation itself has lined up under the creator who is... God, who is Jesus, has lined up underneath him. Now, this is the picture he's trying to paint. That what Christ has done for us is greater than we imagined. 
And I think this is, let's first understand why he's writing it to who he's writing it to. To people scattered throughout the known Roman world at the time. These Jews who are now, have now come to faith, they're being persecuted on all fronts. This title Hebrews is, is, is indicating to us he's writing to Jewish believers throughout the known world. And they're being persecuted not only by their former brethren, but now also by the Roman Empire often. And so there's a heavy amount of persecution. They need a great deal of help. And to these people, the writer is starting from the beginning. Hey, let's, let's look at the former things first so you can understand just how good this thing is. Just how great this Jesus really is. He's greater than you ever imagined. Because he's returning you to the things you lost. And I'm not talking about the things you've lost in your lifetime. I'm talking about the things you lost at Adam and Eve. The stuff you never even had a choice that you lost. He has now restored you in this very way. Putting the creation under subjection. Subordinating it. This is why here he quotes Psalm chapter 8 verse 4 and 6. Hebrews has so far been filled with quotes of the Old Testament. He goes on here to quote Psalm 8 where he says, What is man that you're mindful of him? One of these famous texts of the Psalms, which he is pointing it now to, this is about the Messiah. This was a messianic prophecy. And we should have observed that when we saw the title, Who is the Son of Man or the Son of Man that you care for him, which is an often used messianic title. The author's contemplating. And they're all contemplating what must have happened in Genesis chapter 1, where it says, God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Can you imagine an an omnipotent, almighty God who's creating things and decides to make this one being, you and I, in his image, in his likeness? We're different. We're, We're different than the rest. He set us aside for a specific purpose that we would have dominion over the world he's created. Now, we can pretty obviously tell that that's not going so well. That's pretty obvious. Although, at times, and there are certain points where we do have a sense of dominion. Uh, my, my cat, if he wants in the house, he comes in the house when I want to let him in the house. All right, I have a certain amount of dominion over that. But if the cat was bigger, we'd probably have a problem. Because there's some big cats in the world that I wouldn't mess with. Uh, that, you know, I could, we, can, we can take these lions and these tigers and we can put them in a zoo and take our kids and go, look at that. That's a wonderful tiger. But if you throw your kid in there, it's not going to be good. But on that side of the glass, on that side of the fence, all is well. Look what we do. We have dominion until we get in their domain. We have partial dominion. This is the thing. This is what's been robbed from us. We don't have control truly over the things in which God had originally intended for us to steward. We have no control over uh, 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 diseases and things like that. That's that's to go even farther. Forget the animal kingdom, which we should have had dominion, we have partial dominion over. We have no control over what's happening to and in our bodies. These are things that Christ has restored and will be fully restored later. He's realigning us to our original purpose and intent. God never put his creation under the angels. Now he keeps coming back to this. Apparently there was some some struggles in Jewish thought of these early believers who weren't sure if Jesus was just the, the greatest of the angels. No, he's making clear over and over again, no, you need to just dump that whole thought. That's not a good that's that's stinking thinking right there. Dump that. He's greater than the angels. In fact, in many ways the the, the way in which God created us, he designed us for a purpose and and this, this act of salvation, he did it for us and not the angels. Now that's a thinker. That, I don't know if that's something that's ever dawned on you before. But when Christ came and took on the cross and raised from the grave for humanity, he did that for, for mankind, but he didn't do it for the third of the fallen angels. They will continue to be in ruin. I don't know why. I don't know the purposes of God, but I'm thankful that his purpose was this, to save me and to set me free. Now, he uses this title there in verse 6, Son of Man. 
I could point you to a bunch of different places. Strong's when writing on this, Strong's being the kind of the ultimate comment or uh, like word for word study there. It, Strong says, used by Christ himself, doubtless in order uh, to furnish the pattern of a perfect man acted on behalf of all mankind. This is a title we see in the book of Luke, in the book of Daniel. It should be pointing us to the Messiah, who is Jesus. Now he says some things here in verse 6 through 8, and then in the end of verse 9 that are somewhat tricky to deal with. Uh, first of all, he says in verse, in verse 6, it is, it is said somewhere. Did you catch that? It is said somewhere. Now that doesn't sound very uh, biblical, does it? That sounds kind of odd, like the author of Hebrews didn't know where this was in the Bible. Do you read it that way? It's kind of easy to see it that way, and yet that doesn't seem to be his intent. If you kind of unpack that, what he's really saying is, hey, you guys, you guys know this saying. You've heard it said. This, Jesus says this all the time. You have heard it said this, but this. This is what the writer is doing here. Hey, look, y'all have heard this a bunch of times. Who is man that God is mindful of him? Well, let me help you to see who that is. And then in verse 9, he tells us exactly, or verse, yeah, verse 9, he says, namely, this is Jesus, the one who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Now, there's some thoughts on what that means. Was it that Jesus was lower than the angels when he became a man? That God, Philippians speaks to this, that he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself even to the form of a servant, to the point of death, death on a cross. Perhaps that's what's intended here. I like what Martin Luther has to write about it. He thought that the little while that Jesus was lower than the angels was the three days in the tomb. I think that's a fair thought. That for just a moment, for just a brief moment, it looked like evil had won. For, for a moment, the evil one must have thought he was successful. He doesn't know the story. He doesn't know. He, he, he knows very well the words of God, but he doesn't know how to rightly interpret them. He doesn't know what's coming in the end. He, he, he thought having defeated the Son of God, he had won. For just a moment, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. But then he was given the name above all names, that even knee should bow, that all this stuff follows. How? This is one of the better pictures and really all of Scripture of what Christ did for us. That He set aside His glory, His honor. He was a little lower to the point of death, death on a cross, to the point of being in, in a tomb for several days. And then at the point of resurrection, all crowns, all honor, all of that is now given and laid at His feet. Why? Because of His suffering. The verse says, and also because he has done something amazing. He has tasted death for everyone. Now, I don't, I don't know how you've come today. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal just a little bit of my hand. If, if we were playing a game of cards, let me just give you one of my hand uh, where I sit on some issues that maybe aren't even important to you, but maybe someone in the room they are. When, when it says here that he tasted death for everyone... For me, that just blows up limited atonement, okay? So if you know what, anything about what I'm talking about, I, I feel like there are passages like this, and there are many, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The whole world there, the cosmos, here he tasted death for, the word here in Greek is pos, all. Not just the elect, not just those who will choose. Now, I get there's nuance to this. God knows who will believe because he's all-knowing. But the idea here is that Christ's atonement was good enough for all. It was good enough for everyone. He tasted death. This is, in fact, I think a reference to this final scene of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he says several times, hey, take this cup from me, but if not, if not your will, not my will, but yours be done. He keeps using this reference to, I don't want to have to drink it. This, this cup of death and suffering. But if I must, your will and not mine. And now the writer of, all, of Hebrews says he did it. He took the drink. He tasted death for us. Now I admit something. He doesn't mean physically here. He must not. Because I have, 
I have experienced, I have seen many of my friends, family, many of my church members have passed on and gone and graduated to heaven. But they didn't taste death in the sense of this text. This is a death of eternal separation from God that Christ has paid for. And it goes on later in this text, and this is for somebody in here, I don't know who, but you're living in this fear of death that has made for what the Bible here calls lifelong slavery. You're enslaved to doubt and fear because you haven't received this thing that Christ has done for you once and for all, that he tasted death so you didn't have to. I wonder what you're waiting on. He has offered to realign us into God's purpose. The authority given to Jesus is greater than any other or anything else. Look at Paul writing to the Ephesian church. Chapter 1, he says, Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Now, verses like this are very comforting to me. I would remind you of them today, believer, as we watch the news day in and day out, as we see the world seeming to go completely haywire. I want you to know something. Jesus is in charge. He's not stepped down from his throne. He's not going to. In fact, for only three days did it seem like evil had won. That's pretty brief in human history. He's been in charge. He's still in charge. He has a plan. And, and the, the Bible is pretty clear that there will be wars, rumors of wars. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. I don't know. I'm not sitting up here saying, hey, let come drink the Kool-Aid with me. It's coming soon. But I know this. A lot of the things I read in the last days have occurred. What does that mean, believer? That means I don't have to live in fear. I know who my Lord is. Also... I don't know if he'll come in my lifetime. And if he does, I want, to, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. I want my friends and family to be ready. I want to stop wasting opportunities. I, 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 want, to, I, I want to really be intentional in the conversations I have with people because I don't know. But here's what I don't have, fear of death. No, I do not. Because Christ Jesus is ruler, authority, power, leader, not just in this world, but in the world to come. Hallelujah. It says in Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he sat on the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. I'm looking forward to that day, but until then, he is in charge, he is my savior, he is my leader. This is what the verse is speaking to here, in fact. I'm going to get into that more in a moment, but verse 10 says he's the founder, which means he's the captain. He's the captain of the faith, and I'm following him. I want you to get something here. Look what what God has done on your behalf. I read this story years ago. I mean, really probably when I was probably a teenager, I read Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but he published this back in the late 1800s. But the idea of this tale is that there's, there's these two young boys who looked pretty much identical. They look like twins, and one of them's a prince, and one of them's a pauper. And they bump into each other one day. There's a lot more to this story. But however, they bump into one another and they decide to trade places. Because they're both sick of their lives for different reasons. And what they, uh, they, you can read the rest of this story. They end up finding out that they were both pretty content with what was. And, and it's a pretty cool story in the sense of like, do the best with the lot you've been given. Don't wish for something else. That's kind of Mark Twain's goal. But understand that... I don't know if Mark Twain had this in mind, but this is the exact exchange that Christ has made for us. This is the exact exchange. In order to bring us back into alignment with God's purpose, he became the pauper and said, hey, y'all be be princes. Do you understand that? Worse than that, he didn't just say, I'll take the poor disposition of mankind. I'll take the death you deserved so that you could be sons and daughters of king, 
of the king. You could be princes and princesses. That's a That's the greatest exchange known to man. That's why this story is the gospel, the good news. And if you're saying no to that, if you've not received that, it it makes very little sense to me that the great gift you've been given, receive it, that you would be fulfilling God's purpose. Now, here's the second reason. i got a lot of text to cover. i got to move. Because he alone offers us God's salvation. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because this is really what we talked about entirely last week. But the sense of what he's done here in verses 9 and 10, he tasted death on our behalf. And then verse 10, he became the founder of our salvation. The word founder there is archegos. Arche is a word we still kind of use in English. It means the first of. Like the, the archetype or prototype, if you will, is a similar word. The, 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 the leader of, it could also mean like the, the first or the chief so this word literally means the, the chief leader, the first leader. It could be translated pioneer, prince, captain. Jesus is the captain of our faith. He's the leader. He's certainly the author, founder. I love one version even says he's the champion of our faith. And the scripture tells us this interesting thing that in fact... Part of what God the Father was doing in sending him and that Jesus would be our salvation through suffering, that that, in fact, is what made him uh, or perfected him. But not in the sense of, like, suffering, let's, let's just be, let's chase this rabbit for just a second. And this isn't a fun topic, but we're going anyway. Suffering in our life can cause one of two things to happen. Either make us bitter, miserable people which is a, lot, a road a lot of people take, maybe you've taken. Um, there's a way out, different subject. But there's another thing that you can do when facing pain and suffering is to grow, to, to be better. As my dad used to say, you can be either bitter or better. And so you can choose that, that suffering would, in a sense, perfect you. It would make you more moral and, and, and more ready to face the next challenge, if you will. I don't know. That's not the nature of the perfecting of Jesus here. Why? Because Jesus didn't lack in moral excellence. He had no lack. So what is the nature of this word perfect? Well, here it's the idea of to bring to a finish, to make complete. That what Jesus did, he had to take on the full picture of suffering. That is, he had to take on the cross and the grave in order to complete, perfect our salvation. What that means is until Christ came, until he came and died for us, our salvation was incomplete. It just was. There was a system of sacrifice in place that people were basically writing IOUs for thousands of years. Do you understand this? They were saying, there's going to come a lamb one day who's going to pay this debt, but I can't pay it. Writing IOU after IOU. And then finally Jesus came and did the perfecting, the completing of our salvation. That now... We look simply to him as the author, captain of our faith. His now is the only name by which we are saved. This is clear in the book of Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the founder. He's the champion of our salvation. Let me move on now to the third reason. Because he alone makes us members of of God's family. Now, the first one is certainly very important in Hebrews. He wants us to know that God is returning us to his original intent by the, by the sacrifice of Christ, but not just that. It's this prince and pauper thing that's happened. We have gone from being a mess and people doing our own thing to now being in the very family of God by the person of Jesus. This word brothers appears several times here in the back half of the text. That, that Christ, in fact, it says in verse 11 there, that Christ was not ashamed to call us brothers. He was, he was happy to do it. In fact, for the joy set before him, it says in another passage, took on the cross for our behalf. He saw it as a wonderful opportunity to bring us, to adopt us in to the family. This is in verse 11 that, that he sanctified us by one source and he's not ashamed of us. 
And then this word brothers, which I had to chase. Maybe I'm a weirdo. I don't, I don't know. When I, some things when I read in the text, and I don't know if you do this, but I read that and I'm like, I'm his brother? Like there's, there's some other, and you can chase this rabbit too if it thrills you, but there's some other cults out there that believe that we are literally the brother of Jesus. He is literally our brother and they, they mishandle a text like this and say that. There's others that believe Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. There's some, there's some wild thoughts and religions and, and, and faith groups out there. So I'm chasing this for a minute. In what way am I the brother of Jesus? Well, only in the sense, and, and very importantly in the sense, that he took on flesh and in every way he became like me so that he could save me. So that I too could follow my captain, King Jesus, Leader, chief leader Christ, that I could follow him into salvation in such a way that now I can read a passage like Romans chapter 8 where it talks in heavy dose about our adoption now into the family of God. How am I a brother to Jesus? Because God has adopted me and he is the son. Does that mean I'm divine? Absolutely not. This is a rabbit y'all probably wouldn't have even chased, but I shared it anyway. We're his brother in the sense that he has set us free and in every way was like us, yes, yet without sin. This is wonderful stuff. And the writer here comes back, comes full circle in verse 16 and says, and don't forget this, he came to help the offspring of Abraham. Now that's important. Notice he doesn't say he came to help the offspring of Moses or of the law. He actually goes to his first covenant. He doesn't go to the Old Testament covenant. He goes to the original covenant with Abraham. and says the offspring of Abraham, who we've been grafted in with, Jew and Gentile alike, he says, for them Christ has helped. Galatians chapter 3, in fact, says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know how this hits you today, but I pray that it really speaks to you that I don't know what your family background has been. I don't know what kind of hurt you've been through. Or if you feel a sense of disconnect with your personal family or, or like you're an outsider somehow. I want you to understand something that's happened in Christ Jesus. You've been brought into the family of God. To the saints of old that there's a wonderful place. There's a feast being prepared for you in glory. But even, even now you've been brought into this family of God. Adopted in as one of his sons and daughters. This is amazing. And even if you had a great background, understand this. This is, this is even better. This family is even more important. Which is, is kind of something I had to chew on again this week because my family is pretty close. And, and not just in relation, but also in distance. I see them all the time. I would argue more than I'd like to. Um, but, but they'd be offended to hear me say that. I'd say it to their face. But nevertheless... We do a birthday like once a month, y'all. It's kind of, it's insane. Um, because there's 10 grandkids now. There's somebody having a birthday all the time. But um, I think we got one coming up, in fact, in like two weeks. Um, but anyway, when I think about them, I have a certain fondness, a certain love for them. I would do anything for them, for my brother, my sister, for my siblings, my, my, my nieces and nephews. I, I, would, do, I would do anything for my parents. I, I would, but in comparison... Jesus says this very thing. When his mother and his brothers come to visit him at temple, they're trying to get him to come and leave. And he says, who are my brothers and my mother and sisters? No, the people who here are walking with the Lord, they are my brothers and sisters and my parents. He's trying to teach us something, even from an early point in his ministry, that the family of God supersedes blood. And it just will in eternity. It just will. We're going to look at one another in a brand new way. But, but we could start now as the church, start looking at one another as real family. Not just, ah, oh, man, I got to sit near that guy. Oh. No, that's, that's, that's my brother. And I would do anything. I'd pour out for them. That's a challenge. That's something I got to wrestle with even now because I have a tendency to be uh, f- kind of frugal with my time and things. And so... 
No, we've been adopted into the family. This is why Paul writes to the Ephesians, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I'm going to give you another story really quick. Right after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to Mary Magdalene who was weeping at the tomb. He scared her to death. He, He reappears. She's expecting him to be dead. And she didn't recognize him at first. In fact, the Bible says she thought him a gardener. Just he was tending to the tomb site, I guess. And he called her name Mary. And she recognized him and fell at his feet. And he told her not to cling to him, but instead to go to my brother's. John chapter 20, it says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is this picture now that Christ is the firstborn from among the dead, that we are now in the family of God. And he wasn't ashamed to call them brothers. Here's the final reason. And this one's my favorite. I'll just, I'll reveal that. He alone understands and represents us as God's mediator. As God's mediator. (laughs) Now maybe you don't feel this way. At times I wonder why God would even listen to someone like me. I, I wonder right now why some of you are listening to me as well. But you're here. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. And I wonder in prayer, why would, he care, why would he care about these little mundane details of stuff I'm dealing with? And especially why would he care when and 10 seconds later I'm going to make a massive mistake probably or think something crazy. And yet God loves me and cares. Why? Because of Christ. And this is something I'm more and more trying not to take for granted. That I have a relationship with God through Christ that for thousands of years, people couldn't have dreamed of. That now by the mediator, the Savior, I can come into the Holy of Holies and make requests and that I've already been saved and that this thing, that that Christ sits in between me and a holy God who has every right to judge me and yet instead he loves me because he sees Christ in me. This is like the most amazing thing that has happened. This this passage in chapter 2 really reveals so much about the character of Christ Jesus. That everything has been put under his power, yes. That he took on and tasted death for all of us. Yes, he's our savior. But more than that, verses 14 and on tell us some incredible news. That he became one of us so that we wouldn't have to fear death. But more than that says there in verse, let's see, where am I at? Verse 17, being made like his brothers in every respect, now he can be our merciful high priest in the service of God, making propitiation for the sins. Now, high priest... He's the, he's the chief priest. Now, we have to, we have to, we have to go Old Testament for, five, for just a few seconds and go, okay, how is this good news? Why is this good news? Because for generations, the people would come with their sacrifices and bring them to the priest, to the high priest, and he would make sacrifice before the altar of God. He, in that time period, was the mediator between man and God. And so we would say, oh, I've come. I've, I've, I've done ill. I've, I've made this mistake. I've brought offerings that... I can come in a state of repentance and now the priest would bring that before God and offer that to him as a, a burnt offering. And there were, uh, there were many offerings like this to deal with the various problems of the people. But it's an incomplete system, as we've just talked about. It's an IOU, if you will. God was satisfied with it because the debt would eventually be paid. Now, now, believer... <laughs> At this very moment, you could close your eyes and step into the throne room of God and there is Christ, your high priest, mediating between you. No longer do you have to bring a sacrifice. No, he was your sacrifice. Imagine that. A high priest that not only has done the task, but now, still, now, represents you, mediates for you before the Holy of Holies. 
And then it goes on in verse 17 to give you a present tense word. Why? <laughs> to, it says to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means, this word propitiation is a big word. We never really use it much. But we see it in the text from time to time. It literally means to appease. It means that, that, that he has appeased the wrath, that God has a righteous wrath for sin. And we are sinners, so he has a righteous, just wrath for us. However, the propitiation is that this wrath has now been appeased. In fact, what has happened is that wrath has been poured out on Christ. And he has dealt with it. This is the idea of atonement. There's a lot underneath this word, but it's the idea of appeasement, if anything else. And it says that in the present. That means not only has he done it, he is doing it, and he will do it. That means I don't have to fear the fact that I just thought something I shouldn't have thought, did something I shouldn't have done. I can come back to the Holy of Holies again, to the, high, the great high priest who is both priest and sacrifice and say, I'm laying that again at your feet. And he is still making propitiation, appeasing. I don't know exactly what it must look like, but I have a feeling Jesus is sitting <laughs> at the right hand of the Father. And God looks down and said, did you just, hey, did you see what, did you see what Jonathan just did? Jesus leans over. Yeah, yeah. I paid for that too. I paid for that one too. And that one. And there's this like welling up in my heart of, I'm so thankful for that, but also, and this is the Holy Spirit's role in my life of convicting. This, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is that I want more and more to be like Christ. I want less and less for him to have to say, yeah, I got that one too. I got that one too. But I'm so thankful at the same time. Do you understand how God has put fear out of your life? This idea of slavery. You have been in bondage to your wrongdoings. You have been in bondage. But now Christ Jesus has both become your priest, your sacrifice, your propitiation. He's all of this. And he's your mediator. First Timothy, Paul writes, First Timothy chapter 2, there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. He is our great help because he stands in the gap. And he, I love what later we're going to read this in a few weeks in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we have one standing in the gap on our behalf who knows exactly what we've been tempted by. He walked, he walked it with us. And yet he overcame it. And I'm thankful that he's the one that stands between me and a holy God. Now it's about time. I want to finish with this thought. It's about time, I think, for me to go back through the Band of Brothers series. Um, some of you have never watched it. Um, you're missing out. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Like 10-part episode of an easy company going through World War II. And fighting this just amazing war, this terrible war. and I love the story, but the thing that really captivates me is the relationships, and particularly one, this relationship that he becomes major winners, but he starts off as lieutenant winners. The, this relationship he has as a leader to his soldiers. And they all go through this terrible training together to be a part of this parachute division who's going to parachute in to France under great gunfire. It's an amazing story. based. Uh, the, the show, in fact, is based on so many true facts written uh, down by, by major winners there. But I love the very first few episodes the most because it paints this picture of servant leadership. And what it looks like to be a good leader. And what sets Lieutenant Winters apart from this, the main leader who is Lieutenant Sobel is that the men straight up hate Lieutenant Sobel. And there's a lot of reasons why. Well, first of all, he's just downright mean to them. <laughs> he's constantly making them like they dig holes just to fill them back in. 
Just random stuff to put him to work. He makes him run up this hill in Tekoa over and over again, which later on they do kind of thank him for, for getting them. They were, they were very ready for war. But he mistreats them. He's hard on them. But, but even all of that, and some of you had coaches, you've had leaders like that in your life that you may have still liked because they may have done the, the next step, which is to build camaraderie with them and spend time with them. He didn't do that part. He just led them like dogs and then wasn't trying to have any personal relationships with them at all. Lieutenant Winters did it different. And he won the men's respect very early on because they felt like not only was he in charge, but he was one of them. And he was, he was suffering with them. And I love these kinds of stories. And you could, think of, you could think of a ton of these types where the best leaders are the ones that the people felt. Not only is he good, good at guidance, but he'll do the things we're doing. He'll, he'll, he'll go through the, the mud with us. He'll do the things. And all of these are painting the story that God has told in an imperfect way. He told it better. That, that God's story to us, the, the great redemptive story, he started from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Do you understand that dead sinner there at the break at Matthew, this is where Jesus shows up? And it was what the whole story was about all along. That God is painting a picture of we're going through the mud together. We're, we're, we're in tremendous pain together. And then this one shows up and goes right through it with us. And goes a step further than we, than we ever could. Sacrifices himself for us. So that how? Now he could be the founder, the captain of our salvation. I hope you walk away today with a, a newfound passion for your Savior. Who is, has now, is now restoring you to the purpose, God. That you have a greater purpose now in Christ Jesus than you ever thought. That he has left you on this planet. If, if you've come to Christ, he's left you here. Not just to take care of your family and do these things. But that you would be a witness of his great glory. And he's left you for that purpose. And has now saved you. Has, is now mediating between you. And is your, is your chief leader, your captain. Behold. See this Jesus. He's our king, our founder, our brother, our high priest, our friend, our refuge, our strength, our very present help. Lean on him. I don't know what you need help with in your life right now, but I pray you would bring it to the Savior, the mediator, the great refuge. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, I ask now that you would guide your people. Guide me. That we wouldn't look anywhere else but straight to you. That so often we have a tendency to look everywhere at everyone else when we're in, when we're in need of help. We, we have a tendency not to come to you. The very place we need to go first. God, I pray that you would move us as your people. That you would give us that shoulder tap today that I'm here. I'm with you. I love you. I'm your refuge. I'm your friend. I'm your help. I pray you would remind us of that right now. That there's some people in the audience that are going through some, some tough stuff. Sickness. Maybe they faced death. Maybe their, their own bodies fell on them. Maybe they're having a, a terrible time at work. Maybe some family members are in conflict. Maybe they're Maybe they're having struggles in their marriage. Maybe they're having struggles with their finances, which is causing them struggle in their marriage. Maybe their kids just seem like they're going in one direction and the stuff they were trying isn't working. And oh, we have such a tendency, Lord. We admit we have such a tendency to go to a self-help book. We have such a tendency to go to Google and try to figure out what in the world is wrong with our children or our spouse or our finances or our boss or... Oh, we'd love to figure that out. I repent, Lord, that we don't come to you first. But Lord, I would ask now, would you guide us? That person in the audience who's in some, some deep difficulty that needs your great help, that they would turn to you right now. They would offer it up to you in prayer.
that, God, you would stir, that you would move in a way that only could be you, that they wouldn't doubt you any longer. God, you are our great help. Jesus, you are our great help. I'm so thankful for who you are to me. And I recognize that maybe someone has come in here today and they need help in the greatest of way, of greatest of ways, and that is they need help with this sin problem. Maybe for some of you in the audience, it's, it's the problem that leads to death, a spiritual death, one that we can't overcome on our own. That there's nothing we can do to appease God, but Christ has done it. If that's you today, and you know that, you're sensing that now. There's, I'm not going to be able to make this right, but Jesus has made it right. He is my help in this very place where I couldn't fix it. If that's you, would you pray with me? A simple prayer of confession. As it says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Pray with me, my friend. Jesus, I believe you are Lord of my life. You're in charge. You are the captain. You are my Savior. You took on the cross, this suffering, this tasting of death. You took on the cross for me, for my sin, my wrongs, my brokenness, my shame, my guilt. You did. You paid for it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And God, I believe that you raised Christ Jesus from the dead. I'm putting my faith in that today, Lord. I'm asking now, would you be my, my present help? Help me remove the fear of death that I've had in my life. Remove the, the fear I've felt for so long that I can't pay for these wrongs. Dear friend, if you prayed that with me, welcome to the brotherhood of Christ Jesus, that you have now been made brothers and sisters of the faith, that we're in the family of God. I'm so thankful for you, and we're praying with you likewise. God, would you show up and be our help? Would you help us, in fact, to be your lights in this city where there are so many thousands of people who don't even realize the very spot where they need the most help is the spot they're trying to do it themselves. God, help us to be lights in this city. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.